Thank you for tuning in to today's audio message. Here at Temple Baptist Church, we are a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to have you here this morning. Thank you for being here. We are excited. Uh, If you're first time this summer, then uh, you are maybe not aware that we are going through the book of Philippians this summer, and our title for our sermon series is No Matter What. My name is Glenn. I'm one of the people on staff here at the church, and I have the opportunity to open God's Word with you. If you can find the book of Philippians, if you brought a, a Bible with you, it's near the back. If you use electronic Bible, it's also near the back there, and uh, you can find it there in the book of Philippians, one of uh, Paul's letters. Paul is kind of a a really interesting character when it comes to our New Testament, to his story. His story centers around Jesus. When he was uh, a young adult, he was trained to be a Pharisee. Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, but they were more than that. Back then, the religious leaders were also very strong political leaders. And so, not a lot happened without the approval of the Pharisees. And Paul was uh, an up-and-coming leader, a fast-paced, fast-growing, aggressive uh, leader in this group of uh, Pharisees. And from time to time, the Pharisees would be challenged as far as their religious leadership is concerned. And there would be groups or different people that would rise up. And and because the Pharisees liked the power that they had and the position that they had, they would once in a while have to quell some sort of uprising and they would deal with that. Uh, One day, Jesus came on the scene. And he started talking about the truth, and he started talking about the kingdom of heaven, and some of the things that he was teaching was different from what the Pharisees taught. And they didn't uh, like that, they sort of kept their eye on him, and then the, the amount of people who started to listen to him grew, and it grew, and it, it grew to such an extent that the, he became a threat to the Pharisees, and so the Pharisees decided, this is how we take care of these kinds of things, we get rid of the leader. And so they set their sights on Jesus, and they tried to trap him in some sort of, in different ways, and so they could accuse him and arrest him and sort of uh, put this whole movement that they started calling the way, they tried to put this movement down. But that didn't seem to work. They never were able to catch Jesus, any of the the words that he said or any of the things that he, he had done. In fact, he always turned it around on them. And he would call them snakes, and he would call them different things, and uh, he, wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't back down, and they, they didn't like it at all. And so they had their group of people trying to work against, and Paul was one of these people, uh, working against the people of the way. He was very, very aggressive. And then one day, the, the Pharisees got organized enough that they just decided, rather than trying to trap him, let's just trump up some charges, make up some different things, uh, say that he did something, have a quick trial, and that's what they did. They, uh, and they eventually convicted him quickly, they crucified him, and they buried him. And they thought that was the end, because all of the people who were following just scattered during those few days. Just a few days later, three days, uh, there was a rumor that started going around that Jesus didn't stay buried that he came back to life somehow, that he was resurrected was the word they were using. And uh, Pharisees weren't too happy about that because they thought they had taken care of the situation. And then the leaders of, or the, the followers of Jesus became the leaders of this group, the way. And they were convinced that Jesus was the son of God, like he said, because he conquered death. He came back from being crucified. 
And so the religious leaders said, we need to get rid of more of these leaders. We need, the Pharisees said, we need to get rid of these people. And Paul was one of the ones that was sent because he was so aggressive. He would have people arrested. He would have them imprisoned. They would be beaten. Sometimes they would be killed. And they were trying to stomp out this group. And then one day, Paul, on his way to another place where he was going to do the same thing, keep doing what he had been doing, he had a personal encounter with the risen Jesus. And that changed everything for Paul. He realized that Jesus really was the Son of God. And he decided, I want to be on your team. And so he quit the Pharisees. And he started being aggressive and, and to let people know the truth. This really was the son of, is the Son of God. He really did raise from the dead. He wants to save us from our sins. He wants to cleanse us, to help us find forgiveness, to help us find peace, and really even to help us find joy. Well, Paul found himself in the same situation. The Pharisees didn't like this. And so he was one of the ones that was hunted. Eventually, after many different things that happened to him, some of you know most of them, uh, he was imprisoned as well. And being in prison, kept from doing what he wanted to do to tell people the truth about this risen Jesus, the Son of God, he was given to writing letters to churches that he had begun, he had started. And he writes to encourage them from prison. And this is one of the letters that he writes to this group in the city a thousand miles away from Rome called Philippi. And he writes, and the theme of this book is joy. Paul writing about joy, even go, having gone through this kind of situation. And really, it's about finding joy when your circumstances don't make you happy. Finding joy no matter what. And that's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to look at chapter 4. So if you can find Philippians chapter 4, we're going to look at these verses. In the first few verses of this chapter, Paul's telling the believers to continue to stand firm. Uh, don't, don't get afraid. Stay true to the faith because you know your faith is real. Your faith is true. It's in Jesus Christ. He pleads with a couple of people from the church about being unified. And he wants them to be unified together because their purpose is so important. And then he goes to verse 4. And he says, remember, from prison, he says, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. We're going to see a few verses this, uh, this morning, and these verses are all kind of the same structure. It's implied to be a continuing action, and this is one of them. Rejoice in the Lord always. It really means continually be rejoicing in the Lord. Remember Paul, what he's been through. Remember Paul, where he is. And he's writing, he says, continually be rejoicing in the Lord. And I have a tendency to skip over things that I find too hard. So he says it again at the end of that same verse. I say it again, rejoice. That's what he wants for us. He knows that it's possible to continually rejoice. Even when our circumstances don't make us happy. Continually rejoice. And the reason why we can be commanded as followers of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who was raised after being crucified to show that He has power even over death. The reason why we can be commanded to rejoice is because our rejoicing isn't founded in our circumstances. It doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, rejoice in all the things that, you, that happen to you. He doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say rejoice if you're in because you're in prison, but he says rejoice in spite of the fact that you're in prison because our rejoicing is supposed to be founded in the Lord. And so that's what he wants us to remember, that our rejoicing should be continual 
but our rejoicing needs to be in the Lord. It doesn't need to be some fake kind of joy. Have you ever seen uh, some people who are Christians that put, feel like the need to put on a fake joy all the time? No matter what happens, and they feel like their immediate response, their reaction needs to be some sort of a joyful response. So they, they trip over something, they break their arm, or they break their knee, and they pop right up and say, oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> Love and life, life's awesome, right? That's not the kind of joy he's saying. He's saying it's okay to have a broken leg and not like the broken leg, but he says, regardless of what happens, you can still have joy despite your circumstances. Continually be rejoicing. And then he uses that same kind of verb again, and he says, he says let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your gentleness be evident to all. To all. This idea of gentleness, some people miss, we, we misunderstand what it means. It doesn't mean just being allow, allowing everybody to roll over you. It's really more of being able to be a reasonable person, being open to be reasoned with regardless of the situation. He says, let your gentleness, this same kind of attitude, this readiness to listen to reason, let this be evident to all. That means that's how we're supposed to live. We need to live as reasonable people. We need to react as reasonable people. We need to be able to talk to others whether they believe what we believe or not as reasonable people and we need to let this reasonableness be evident to all. And the reason why he says is that it says the Lord is near. The Lord is near. It's an interesting reason why he's asking us but he says, think of what he's trying to tell us. In fact, this word, this phrase, the Lord is near in Aramaic is Maranatha. And that became a greeting in the early Christian church. In the culture, it used to be that, the, or was at the time, that the greeting often was shalom, right? Peace. It was a very common, it still is a very common greeting in that part of the world. But for the followers of Jesus, they decided they wanted to make a greeting that would encourage each other as we follow Jesus. And they used the Aramaic phrase, Maranatha, which means the Lord is near or the Lord is at hand, or the Lord is coming. We sang a song, Jesus is coming soon. That is meant to encourage us. But it's, encourage us, it's supposed to encourage us in how we ought to live. And so he says, let this reasonable attitude that you should have be evident in all of your dealings with all the people that you deal with, because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. It's not a threat. It's an encouragement. It's not, better watch out, Jesus is near, he's going to smack you. It's not that kind of the Lord is near. That's what I used to think, right? Uh, be careful, little hands, what you see. Be careful, the little song we used to sing when I was a kid. Uh, for, and the, the, the verses would go, uh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And then it would go to, the Father up above is looking down in love. And I always thought, the Father up above is looking down, so you better be careful. And I misinterpreted the whole song, and I thought it was a warning. I thought, you better be careful what you say. You better be careful what you do, because God's just ready to smack you, Right? <laughs> And that's not what the Christian life is supposed to be like at all. It's supposed to be an encouragement. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is coming soon. And we need to be able to live in the light of that. And he's encouraging us to do that. Continually be, let it being known, that gentleness that you have. An incredible reminder. And then he says the things that I wanted to get to uh, in these next verses that are so key. He's going to talk about how we think. He's going to talk about our mind and how the battle we often have uh, rages in our mind unseen to other people. We all have these battles in our mind. And he first starts off in this next verse. It uh, says, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. It's another continual verb. 
And it really means, sorry for those who are English majors, I'm not, it's not going to sound right. For those who are grammar gurus, it's not going to sound right. But really what he's trying to say is continually be being not anxious. Continually be being not anxious. As though the being not anxious is a state of mind. And he says, continually be that way. But he doesn't just say, just do that. As, because that's frustrating. Do you find that frustrating? Uh, when you need to settle down, when you need to calm down, you think the, like, the last thing that you need someone to say to you is, calm down. That has never worked on me. I don't think it's ever worked anywhere in the history of the world. When someone needs to calm down and you go up to them and you say, calm down, it never works. Maybe it's the way I say it. <laughs> Maybe a little more confrontational than it needs to be. But it says, he doesn't just leave us with, continually don't be anxious but he gives us the response or what we should do instead of. We take anxiety out and it says, but in every situation by prayer and petition, some of your versions say by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, this is uh, in a sense the, what we're, how our attitude is supposed to be, in everything, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's the same kind of verb. It says, continually be letting your requests made known to God. Continually. I don't know if you feel guilty at times when you go to God for the same thing that you were worrying about last week, and you find yourself worrying about it again today, and you go to Him and you think, Lord, I know you've already heard this from me, but I need to let you know that I have this concern. I have this, these anxious thoughts that are welling up within me. Jesus doesn't tell us, don't tell me more than once. He doesn't say, don't waste my time. I got it the first time. I don't forget things. He doesn't say that, but he says, continually be making your requests made known to me. That's an incredible encouragement. And so it might not be a week between times when you need to go to him with the same thing. It might be a day or an hour or even moments. I've had that time in my, lives where, my life where I've had to go to Jesus, it seems like moment by moment, Lord, I'm just feeling overwhelmed by this anxiety about what might happen. I know things are out of my control, but they're not out of your control, and I can go to you with these anxious thoughts, and I make my request to you. He says, continually make those requests to me by prayer, and petition with thanksgiving. That idea of thanksgiving means, Lord, I know you've worked in my life and the, the lives of so many others uh, for, for so many centuries that I know that you're reliable. I know that you're dependable. I know that you're all-powerful. And it's because of that I'm grateful. And I can come to you and make my request. And God says, continually make those requests. That's an incredible thing that he's been telling us to do. And then he gives us a promise. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding. There is a peace of God that, the peace of God, that tranquility of spirit that God has, that tranquility of spirit that only God can give. It says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That idea of guarding is a, um, a term that we would maybe use for garrison. It's a, a protection. It's like a sentinel standing guard. And it says over our inner lives, over our hearts and our minds, the places where we have a, ten a tendency to allow this anxiety to well up within us. 
He says, if we do these things, present our request continually to God by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. He says, somehow this peace of God, it doesn't make any sense. This peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will be the sentinel guiding and guarding your inner life. An incredible promise that he gives to us. And then he says, finally, uh, as a result of all these things that he's been telling us, as he's introduced this idea of the battle for our mind and the, the thoughts and the worries that we may have, he starts expounding a little bit on the kind of thoughts we should have, replacing these anxious thoughts by taking them to God, but also training ourselves how we're supposed to think. And this is what he goes to in these next verses. In verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, and he gives us a list. This list is not comprehensive. I don't think this list is made intended to be comprehensive. It's supposed to be representative. These are the kind of things that we're supposed to be thinking he's going to tell us. And so he says, first, whatever things are true. These are the kinds of things that we're supposed to be thinking about. The idea of true means unconcealed. It's belonging to the nature of reality. So many times our thoughts run away or run ahead of us or run ahead of reality. And I'm sure some of you are, have been like me that I have a tendency because of my imagination to imagine things and conversations well beyond when they've even happened. And I imagine how poorly they might go and how bad things might happen. But that's not true. None of that's even happened yet. And so Paul writes, says, make sure that when you're thinking about what you should be thinking about, make sure, first of all, you're thinking about what's true, the idea of being unconcealed. And then he says, whatever things are noble, whatever things are noble. And the idea of this noble is worthy of reverence. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are right, it says next, Whatever things are right. And the idea of, of right doesn't mean correct, but it's really in accordance with the standard of God himself. Whatever things are just, some versions say. That kind of right. The things that are really right, those are things that we should be thinking about. And then he says, whatever is pure, those are the things that we should be entertaining in our mind. Whatever things are pure. This word pure is the same root word that we get the English word holy from. Those kinds of things are the things that we should be allowing in our minds. And sometimes we don't let our, we don't control what we think. We don't allow, we, we allow our, our mind to take control of us and guide us where our thoughts go, take us where we should not go. When it comes to impurity, we were just listening to a speaker some time ago, a few of us, and uh, she mentioned that one in every five uh, searches on, uh, on the internet is for pornography, worldwide, one in five. And God wants us to remember that our thoughts are to be whatever are, is pure. And so we need to take hold of the thoughts that we have and be careful and be cautious. Next one says, whatever things are lovely. Not lovely in the sense of, oh, that's a nice flower. What a lovely flower. Not that kind of lovely. It's, it's two words sort of pushed together means toward love. Whatever things push us toward considering love considering the thing that true love is. Whatever those kinds of things are, those are the things that we should be thinking about. And then it says, whatever things are admirable, that idea of a, a 
that produces a good reputation. And if it says, if there's anything that's excellent or if there's anything that's praiseworthy, that idea of being morally good or commendable. And then it says, think about such things. That's that same continual type of verb. Continually be thinking these things. Continually be thinking these kinds of thoughts. So it comes to, to mind that my thoughts are my responsibility. Your thoughts are your responsibility. You have to decide what you're going to think, what you're going to entertain, what ideas you're going to entertain. You have to decide that. And God wants us to know that we should have certain kinds of thoughts continually. It says continually be thinking this way. Not just once in a while, but all the time. And imagine how transformed we would be if we would control the thoughts that we have. This representative list of how we should be continually thinking. In 1929, Henry Ford, he said, thinking is the hardest work there is, which is probably the reason why so few engage in it. <laughs> but it's, it's real, it's true. So many of us let our thoughts take us, and we drift along with the thoughts that we have, rather than what the Bible says in another place, taking every thought captive deciding what we're going to think about, deciding how we're going to think, deciding the thoughts that we're going to entertain. We are in charge of the thoughts that we have. And we need to watch our thoughts because they become our words. And we need to watch our words because they become our actions. We be watch our actions, they become our habits. We watch our habits because they become our character. And we watch our character because it becomes our destiny. And it all goes back to watching our thoughts, how we think. There was a bumper sticker that said, I can read your mind and you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> I think that bumper sticker made a lot of people nervous. <laughs> they thought, oh my goodness, can you really? That would be the superpower that I think, now that I think about it, that's the superpower I want, to know what everybody's thinking. Then I realized I, I, I'm probably going to want to turn that off. I don't really want to know. But we are in charge of the thoughts that we have. And Paul writes from prison. Imagine what his thoughts could have gone like. How depressing his thoughts could have taken him. How down the road of anxiety that I'm not going to get done the things that I think God wants me to do and how is this going to end and what's going to happen. He's writing to us to say continually don't be being anxious. Continually think these kinds of things. Because Paul had learned to do the same thing. To take his anxiety over and over. His anxious thoughts, his worries about what might happen. To take them to God repeatedly, whenever they happen. And then to grab every thought that comes into mind and evaluate it. Is this true? Is it right? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it admirable? Is it worthy of praise? I need to be careful to only think these kinds of thoughts. And then in verse 9, he's willing to put himself up as an example. Not to put himself on a pedestal, 
to say, I'm great, do what I do. He's willing, as he follows Jesus, to allow people to see him as an example. And I think he wants us to do the same thing. But he writes, whatever you've seen and whatever you've heard in me, whatever you've learned, he says, do. Or put into practice. Another continual action verb. Be putting it into practice. Be doing these things. Continually, and I think by the time we do these things continually, we become the people that God wants us to be. And I think Paul discovered the fact that the more I do what I should do, the more I become what I should become. The more I do what Jesus wants me to do, the more I become like Jesus. And he says, I'm finding that. And I'm down the road just a little bit, and you can watch me. If I fail, don't do what I do. But if I succeed, do what I do. But the things, he says, put these into practice. He doesn't necessarily say, master them. He says, put them into practice. The best of our athletes in the world aren't 100%. But the best of the athletes in our world continually practice. They want to get better. They want to improve. If you play baseball and you get a hit, one out of every three times you get up to bat, they consider you amazing. <laughs> you can go up and you can strike out two times in a row and then get a little single and you think, wow, you're, you're way ahead of the game. You, you know, we'll, we'll pay you $10 million a year to do that, right? And then if you play basketball and you miss less than half of your shots, uh, they think you're incredible. You can, miss, you can miss 49% and you're still at the 50% mark and you're way above most of the league. They keep practicing. They don't, they're not perfect. But that's what we're supposed to be like. We're supposed to put these ideas, these concepts, the way that God wants us to live, put them into practice in our life. And then he says, after he says continually be doing these things or continually be practicing these things, then he says the God of peace will be with you. He mentioned the peace of God earlier. This peace of God that goes beyond all of our comprehension. This peace of God, this tranquility of spirit that God has and only God can give. He says, the God of peace, that God, he says he will be with you. Not one time, but continually. He will continue to be with you as you do these things. Sometimes in our Christian life, we really focus on the idea that God has done everything for us. And I love that. We don't have to earn His love. We don't have to earn His forgiveness. He's willingly and free to give His forgiveness. But He wants more for us. He says, I come I, that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He said, in a sense, I didn't come just to save you. There's so much more to life than that. There's so much more I want for you. And he's given us a pathway to walk on. And he's promised his presence. No matter what, the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the promises that you give, that you are the God of peace and that we can experience the peace of God. I thank you for this guidance that you have. And I pray for us as we sometimes struggle with the things that we think. We sometimes struggle with the worries and the cares that we have. Lord, I pray that you will help us to remember continually to bring them to you, 
to make our request to you and that we will experience your peace. I pray that you'll guide our minds, guide our hearts, and help us to continually think the things that you want us to think. And I thank you for the promise of your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.